the truly blessed life. My guess is that we'd end up with a list of things that included wealth, uh, possessions, amazing holidays, a second home in Cornwall. Some of you are going, yeah, I like the sound of this. Great friends. People might add things like safety, world peace, comfort, being loved. There would be, I'm sure, varying levels of altruism depending on who we spoke to. Our culture is obsessed with well-being and happiness. I'm told by Google, so I'm sure it's true, that over 4,000 books were printed, published last year, that had the title happiness, had the word happiness in the title. The so-called happiness project is in full flow, and it's acutely needed and felt by people in a post-pandemic world where we are still in transition from the world as it was into some sense of what on earth might be going on longer term. As humans, we are hardwired to seek out the good life. And we seek it in all sorts of ways, for all sorts of reasons, not always the best. We vote, don't we, for the political party that we think is most likely to get us closer to it, or certainly that was the theory uh, in the past. Many of the great speeches that uh, kind of captivate us culturally, that are kind of in our uh, cultural landscape, are attempts by people to articulate a vision for human flourishing that is full of possibility and hope, the truly blessed life. We might think, for example, of Martin Luther King. I have a dream. Or JFK, don't think about what America can do for you, but what you can do for America. Maybe we'd think about Obama or Mandela, Winston Churchill. One of my most favorite recently uh, it was Amanda Gorman's poem at the inauguration of President Joe Biden. It ends like this. In every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. And when we hear those kinds of words, they, they pull, don't they, on our heartstrings. They, they invite us into something. They challenge us and they call us to be something more than we are. Well, I want to suggest to you that the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're looking at the first part of uh, in this series, is the ultimate speech and the ultimate vision about ultimate human flourishing. It is the ultimate vision for poss- of possibility and hope for the truly blessed life, that it, it, it puts everything else uh, into context. It's Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom of God, and it is the best vision of human flourishing you will ever hear. Verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, some context is important here because just a few verses earlier in the end of chapter 4, we read these verses. 
Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That's important because when we hear these words, it's tempting to think that Jesus was sat in some sort of nice, quiet garden on the edge of town just with his mates. Okay, guys, here's the vision. Here's the plan. What we have to understand is that there are literally thousands of people clamoring around to hear what Jesus is going to say. This isn't Jesus just with a few mates. This is Jesus' moment to declare his vision. It takes place in the context of a complex melting pot of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of experiences, with all sorts of expectations and worldviews. It would have been a febrile atmosphere. It was politically charged. People were hungry. They were hungry for food, and they were hungry for change. And they're waiting for a new revelation from God, from this new radical rabbi, Jesus, who has upset every single cultural and religious norm by now. And it says that he sat down. Now, rabbis would go about, they'd walk and talk, they'd teach on the road. We see that with the disciples, don't we? He'd often stand, Jesus, on the side of a mountain or in a boat. Rabbis stood to teach. But when they sit down to teach, it's like this is the moment. This is the real teaching, the significant teaching. Side note, that is why we still talk about chairs of professor in universities. It's about authority and um, wisdom and knowledge and a reverence of what they know and carry. So Jesus is sat down, and people are paying attention. They've got two questions in their minds. What is the blessed life, and who's going to deliver it for us? The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes that we've just heard read again, eight statements that encapsulate Jesus' vision for what true human flourishing looks like when his kingdom comes. They are both a description of the good life, but they're also a commendation of how we are to get it. So uh, one of the theologians who's written an amazing commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Jonathan Pennington, writes this. And it's quite long, this quote, but, and I'll unpack it, but it's really important for us. He says this, The Sermon on the Mount is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has always faced. How? How? Can we experience true human flourishing? The sermon's answer to the human flourishing question is that true human flourishing is only available through communion with the Father God, through his revealed Son, Jesus, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This flourishing, he says, is only experienced through faithful, heart-deep, whole-person discipleship, following Jesus' teachings and life, which situate the disciple into God's community, the church, or kingdom. This flourishing, he says, will only be experienced fully in the eschaton, that is theological language for when Jesus returns, when God finally establishes his reign upon the earth. Notice this, as followers of Jesus journey through their lives, they will experience suffering in this world, which in God's providence is in fact a means to true flourishing even now. 
In the Beatitudes, Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into a way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing, both now and in the age to come. And they're a description of what all Christians are to be like. These are not certain conditions that some of us might have. They're states of being, postures towards God, understandings of who we really are that we're all meant to adopt as we follow Jesus. So here's what John Stott says. All these qualities, he says, are to characterize all his followers. Just as the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, which Paul lists, is to ripen in every Christian character, so the eight Beatitudes which Christ speaks describe his ideal for every citizen of God's kingdom. So there they are. On the side of the hill, Jesus has sat down. A hush descends. This is the moment. And Jesus opens his mouth. Not, I have a dream. But blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessed life, the true good life, Jesus says, proper, true human flourishing looks like being poor in spirit. You want to inherit the kingdom? You've got to become poor in spirit. You can imagine them turning to one another going, Really? Like, really? Like, we've waited this long on the side of a hill for him to say that? Surely not. This doesn't sound like the revolution they were wanting. This doesn't sound like an eight-step plan that we can download off some Instagram advert we saw that's going to change our life this year. This sounds upside down and inside out. It sounds so completely wrong, but I would suggest to you is actually the right way round. That this is actually what it really is to be human in relationship with God. Jesus is not going crazy here. He's resetting all of human history. He's putting everything back the right way round. So let's be clear what Jesus does mean and what he doesn't mean in this beatitude, this first one. What he does not mean is that uh, blessed are you if you are poor. This is not Jesus saying, if you're poor, you're going to be blessed. It's more complex than that. Now, the confusion for this is around a verse, uh, because of a verse in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, that says, uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And it's been misunderstood. The Bible never teaches that poverty is a good thing. So Jesus is never going to affirm that. He's not affirming that here. In the Old Testament, the term poor refers to someone who is experiencing more than just material poverty, although they may be experiencing material poverty. In biblical terms, you can have lots of money and still be poor because it's more than material poverty. In the Old Testament, the term poor is a term that means something to do with uh, being weak and helpless, of a recognition that whatever your circumstances, in the face of reality, you actually can't do it yourself, that you are utterly dependent on God. 
For some, this is because of material poverty. For some, it's to do with social ostracization due to sickness. Think about the bleeding woman who catches hold of Jesus' cloak in the crowd. She's been ostracized because of her illness, and he restores her to community and full health. Maybe for some, it's because of their ethnic background, the Samaritans. But to be poor was to be someone who had understood, whether in just realistic material terms or in a deeper sense, I am weak and helpless. That whatever I have experienced, it's led to me having something denied of me or dispossessed, something taken from me. So I in some way lack the resources I need to defend myself or save myself. I am poor in spirit. I've come to that place of recognizing that without God, I cannot do it. And Jesus says, you have to become poor in spirit if you want to truly inherit the kingdom of life, which is life as it's intended, true human flourishing. So it doesn't mean you have to become poor to experience the kingdom of God. It means you have to start to realize that apart from God, you have nothing, even if there's a lot of money in your bank account. Nor does it mean blessed are those who think that they're nothing. This is not Jesus saying, you've just got to become one of those people that's like, woe is me. I'm a rotten sinner, but I'll praise the Lord for Jesus. That's like a false piety that's just really annoying. Jesus isn't saying, come on, start to think less of yourself. Jesus is inviting us here to understand that actually it's about having a true realistic view of ourselves. Tim Keller says that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's recognizing that before God, we are all beggars. What Jesus is saying here is that we are blessed when we come to that place of recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy and our dependency on him, not ourself, and not what we can achieve. In one of his famous sermons on this uh, passage, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, says this, There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Which is why that is the first beatitude, because it makes room for all the others. It begins with first emptying ourselves. More of that in a moment. So that we can be filled with the things of God. It's coming to the end of ourselves. In the paraphrase of this passage, in the the message version of the Bible, Eugene Peterson has it written, blessed are you when you come to the end of yourself. And this is really important because in a cultural context where it's all about project self, this is super countercultural, super challenging for us. If we are to inherit the kingdom of God... We have to adopt a counter-cultural approach to life. We have to choose, I've said this many times, which kingdom are we going to live in and which kingdom are we going to live for? It's either the kingdom of self, project self, which places us at the center and it's about what we can achieve, it's about what we can accrue. That's the cultural psyche, isn't it? You, You achieve and you accrue. The more you have, the better it is, the bigger it is, the more fulfilled you'll be. The best life is down that road. I've met so many people who have so much. 
They've got amazing CVs. They've got amazing cars. They've got amazing houses. But on the inside, they're empty because it does not satisfy. One of the kind of fascinating things that's happened over the last couple of years to me personally as a vicar in the city is we've started to serve the business community, particularly through the annual business community carol services, is that I have some amazingly well-known, influential people in the city whose names who you would know who come to me like Nicodemus did in the night to Jesus. Say, can we, can I have a chat with you? Because despite all of this, there's this, this, this inner void. It's fascinating. It's either the kingdom of self or it's the kingdom of God, which is not based on what we can achieve and what we can accrue, but it's based on what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. This kingdom of self says that more and more is better. The kingdom of God says less and less is the way to true freedom. If we want the truly blessed life, true human flourishing, we have to give up one and embrace the other. It's either the kingdom of self or it's the kingdom of God. And that means dealing with our pride. Because right at the heart of Project Self is pride. This uh, conviction, belief, false understanding that we can do it on our own. That with just enough of the right hard work, the right resources, the right opportunities, the right amount of time, I can achieve, I can become. It's the root of so much sin in the human experience. Pride. Pride robs us of the freedom that God has for us. Until we face up to the pride in our hearts, till we stop trusting in our family heritage, our education, our CV, our bank balance, our postcode, our reputation, we cannot truly, Jesus says, inherit the kingdom of God. Good news, hey? How's it going? Welcome to 2023. This is the trajectory for us all. The invitation Jesus is extending here is to lay down project self, to empty ourselves of self so that we can receive the true life that he has come to give us. It means starting to trust in the grace and mercy of God. It means coming to the place of humility and surrender before him, recognizing that when it comes to what really matters, we're totally dependent on him. And here's the irony. All that stuff, all the credentials that we might list, it's all his anyway. It's all from him. It's all gift. We delude ourselves when we think we earned it or deserved it. This is what the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 is all about. The rich young ruler, if you know the story, asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. What does he need to do to experience the truly blessed life? Now, ironically, he's portrayed in this story as the rich young ruler. He was the good-looking, well-endowed, uh, well-educated, you know, all of that. And here he is. He's got everything the world can offer, but he comes to this radical rabbi Jesus and says, what do I have to have to have eternal life, the real life that I'm still looking for? And Jesus says to him, well, you've got to keep all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've done that. Now what? 
Well, then Jesus says, go sell your possessions. Give it all to the materially poor. In other words, become poor in spirit. Empty yourself of self. Choose my kingdom, not project self, Mr. Rich, young ruler. End the dependence on self and become dependent on me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away because he couldn't do it. It wasn't the money that hindered the rich man. It was the self-sufficiency. It wasn't the possessions. It was the pomp. It wasn't the big bucks. It was his big head. Martin Lloyd-Jones again, here's what he says. What then is what, sorry, what then is meant by being poor in spirit? It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, he's not saying that we're nothing to God. What he's saying is that in, in contrast to God, what can we bring to self-justify? It's like it's all gift. But when we come empty before him, say, God, here I am, fill me. We can experience it all. This is the epiphany that the prodigal son has when he wakes up one morning, having given up, having taken all project self into his own hands, taken it away and gone, spent it all. He wakes up one morning feeding the pigs and he has this moment of revelation. I am poor in spirit. And he heads home. This is John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. It's not a denial of us, our God-given identity. It's a denial of our self-reliance, our self-assurance. And so the question we're left with is how then do we become poor in spirit? And the short answer, as it always is, is to look to Jesus and to emulate his example. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of all eight Beatitudes. He mourned. He was meek. You'll hear what that really means in a couple of weeks' time. He had a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He was merciful. He was pure in heart. He was a peacemaker. He was persecuted. And he was poor in spirit. Yes, the incarnate God who has it all became poor in spirit. He chose it. And he chose it so he could identify with us so that we could experience all that he had for us. So we read in Philippians 2, Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the theological term here is kenosis, kenosis, and it literally translates as self-emptying. Jesus chose willingly to self-empty. He empties himself, not of his divinity, not of his humanity, 
but of anything that might give him the means to be dependent or reliant upon himself and not the one who sent him. These are the three temptations right at the start of his earthly ministry. If you know the story, Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit leads him into the desert where he faces Satan. And there are three temptations. And those three temptations are around self-reliance, self-worth, self-assurance, self-dependency. And Jesus resists all of them. And he says this in John 5, by myself, I can do nothing. This is Jesus by myself, I can do nothing. I've chosen that state because that is how I can be truly human and model for us all what it is to be truly human. And then he says this in John 14, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He self-empties so that he can be filled, so that we can follow his example. Are you with me so far? Are you tracking This is huge. If we need convincing that this is what Jesus has done, we only need to look at his prayer life. If you look at him praying, read the stories of him praying, the hours he spent in prayer, you see his total poverty of spirit and reliance on God, a chosen posture, a chosen state, and we are to do the same. Which is why Jesus says this, you want to follow after me? You want what I have? You want my kingdom? Take up your cross. Deny yourself. And follow me. It begins when we recognize that everything we have and everything we are is all grace. It's all gift. That we cannot, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, save ourselves. Paul says, salvation without God is impossible. And then saying, okay, God, I'm going to choose, therefore, to empty myself of self. A deliberate act of faith, a deliberate act of humility, a deliberate act of surrender. Not once, but every single morning when our feet hit the carpet in our bedrooms. Choosing again the kingdom of God, the ways of God. And when we empty ourselves of self, we can be filled with the things of God. We can experience the kingdom of God more and more fully. Max Licardo, in his book on this, writes this, the jewel of joy is given to the impoverished spirits, not the affluent. God's delight is received upon surrender not awarded upon conquest. The first step to joy is a plea for help, an acknowledgement of moral destitution, an admission of inward paucity. Those who taste God's presence have declared spiritual bankruptcy and are aware of their spiritual crisis. They ask God to do for them what they can't do without him. Shall we pray? take a moment just to quietly reflect on what you've heard what's the spirit of God been saying to you there's always invitation with God 
And there's always challenge. What's the invitation for you this morning? What's the challenge? Lord, we confess our pride. That temptation we all face to build project self. To not fully trust you and your ways. To delude ourselves that we can do it without you. We pray you'd help us, Holy Spirit, to have faith to again submit and surrender to Jesus, not out of fear or duty, but because we've seen again that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that when we lay down our life for him, we find ours, that when we crucify our old self, we are brought back to life. So we declare spiritual bankruptcy this morning. But thank you that you have paid the debts. And that the invitation of these words is not that we would just know something of your kingdom. But that we would inherit it. And that we would be blessed by you. And so we say help us to empty ourselves of self and to open up to all that you have for us. We lay down the CV and the bank balance and the postcode and we say, God, give us what really matters. for those of us who really do need your provision who are both poor in spirit and financially struggling we recognize that in the middle of all of this is that provision and so I pray for that too as we gather now around the communion